you have a Bible, I know you've been standing for a long time. If you need to sit, that's okay. I understand. Uh, we're so used to, well, we're, we're standing for a long time. We're in Gen- uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to read uh, from 25 to 40. Now, some of you will say, yeah, well, I better, I better sit. I don't know. It's, it's, a long, it's a long passage. Hear the words of the living God, and let us receive them as such. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be free, rather use it. For he is called in the Lord, of he who is called in the Lord, while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price and do not become slaves to men. Brethren, let each one remain uh, in God, in the state, with God in the state in which he was called. Now, concerning virgins, which is speaking of unmarried young women. I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose that there is, that it is good to be because of the present distress, but he says that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? In other words, are you married? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek to uh, a wife. But even if you marry... You've not sinned, and if a, a virgin, an unmarried young woman, uh, she has, uh, if she marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh. He's already mentioned this earlier in the chapter, but I would spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they have none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. In other words, don't be anxious. He says, he who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord. How he may please the Lord. Uh, that's the unmarried. But he who is married cares about the things of this world, not necessarily in, not in a sinful way, but how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The young unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may Put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks he's behaving improperly toward his virgin, in other words, his unmarried daughter, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus uh, it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, his daughter, unmarried that is, does well. So 
then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she's at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment. And I think I have the Spirit of God. Amen. You may be seated. You know, some things are very important. Some things are very valuable even though we don't think of them that often, and even though we don't necessarily think of them that as important and valuable in the moment. I don't know how many of you have noticed in public swimming pools. Now, you're going to say, no, I don't go to public swimming pools. I haven't had my hepatitis shots. Okay, I get that. But at public swimming pools, by law in the state of uh, People's Republic of California, you have to have these huge signs. And they change what they have to say every now and then to keep the sign people in business. And there's all these, these huge signs posted at pools saying what to, how to do CPR. I got news for you. If someone's on the pool deck and is, and is timing out, you don't have time to go read that whole chart and come back and save their life. In other words, the instructions about CPR are valuable, they are important, but the sign, nobody wants to pay attention to that. It just seems superfluous. That's why you've got to read the sign, you've got to learn CPR and know it already. You can't wait until there's an emergency to say, you know, maybe I'll read this and know how to save a life. Chapter 7 is the same way. Chapter 7 is filled with all kinds of information about marriage, about divorce, about remarriage, about how fathers and mothers should be involved in the marriage of their daughters and all this kind of stuff. And if it doesn't apply to you right now, in other words, if nobody's on the deck passing away, you, you don't think about this stuff. It's just like a sign that you could just read through. And, but you know what? When you're in trouble, you wish you would have read it beforehand because if you wait until you're in trouble to read this chapter, you might be in bigger trouble than you think. Chapters 1 through 6, Paul writes instructions to the Corinthians addressing topics that were rep- of problems in the church that were reported to him. Now, beginning in chapter 7, he begins addressing specific questions that the church appears to have asked him. This chapter can be broken down into three parts. Oh, I forgot to dismiss the kids. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. We're learning how to do church again without being handcuffed. If you're going to that, go, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I don't know who's teaching. They'll hate me forever. No, not necessarily. Good. We're good. Um, so in this chapter, he, he has three times he says, now about this, now about this. Th- these are answers to three questions that appear to have been written to Paul and that he was asked about. And from Paul's answers, playing a little bit of jeopardy here, we can kind of figure out what the questions were. The three questions in the chapter, in chapter 7, verse 1, should Christians abstain from sexual intimacy altogether? And we saw in that message the answer is no, obviously. Secondly, in verse 10, can Christians divorce? And we saw the answer to that was sometimes. There are times. The third one, which begins in chapter twenty or chapter 7, verse 25, said, says, should Christian singles remain single? We'll give you the answer in just a moment. 
Question three, should Christian singles remain single? But before giving the answer, I want to give a couple of observations about the text that will help us to understand uh, some kind of side issues about why Paul is writing what he's writing. Here's the first one. God's word, is it God's word or is it Paul's opinion? Now, I don't, notice, I don't know if you noticed while I was reading, a couple of times he says, it's not I, but it's not the Lord, but it's I. And other times he says, this is the Lord speaking. You know, um, when Paul says he has no commandment from the Lord, he's not saying that what he is writing is merely his own opinion. He's saying, when he says, this isn't the Lord, but it's me, he's saying Jesus didn't address this directly and explicitly in his earthly, in his earthly ministry. Uh, Paul's opinion was not merely his own opinion. In verse 25, he is writing as, quote, one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy, close quote. He's an apostle. He has an apostolic authority. His words are scripture. They are inspired by God, and therefore they are inerrant and authoritative to be obeyed as God's word. It's just the difference as to whether or not he's saying Jesus talked about this and I'm affirming that or saying Jesus didn't talk specifically about that, but I'm telling you as an apostle. The second thing is about this question of the word virgins. Paul speaks of virgins four times in this passage. Um, He's speaking of never married women. Now, when I say that, let's not miss that in that day, a never married woman was presumed to be a virgin. In our sin-sick world, that presumption may appear to be very backward, but God's word says that never married people, whether male or female, are supposed to be virgins. Now, for Paul's answer to the question, should Christian singles remain single? The answer, if you want to write that down there next to question number three, is not necessarily. Not necessarily. I'm going to give you six parts to kind of break down what is, I'm sure you were aware that when reading, it's a little bit of a laborious section. He's talking about marriage. He's talking about these things. But then he talks about, you know, the Lord is coming and that's, that's a given and, and how we live should be in response to the reality that he's coming. But um, here we go. Verse 27 on your outline. Number one, do not obsess about getting married. Do not obsess about getting married. Verse 27 is not a command forbidding singles to marry. Of course not. He is just saying that singles shouldn't be overly stressed about marriage. Why? Because, as Jesus said, we need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then trust that he will add everything to that rather than uh, saying, you know, I said my prayers to, to Jesus, I said my prayers to God, and now I'm consumed with this, I got to get married, I got to get married, I got to get married. Seek the Lord. If he brings you a mate, marry. Be open. Have your eyes open. Keep looking. And if you're a Christian, pray, not only for a mate, but that God in his mercy would spare you from marrying the wrong person. Because the second most important decision any human being will make in this life, the first being, is Jesus Lord, will be, who do I marry? This is a huge decision that has has lifelong consequences or blessings, depending on how you proceed in there. The idea is 
Don't obsess about being married. Believe me, trust me, when I tell you those who are not content while being single will not be content while being married. If you think marriage is the answer to all your problems, like voting for Pedro or something like that, it's not going to happen. Marriage is wonderful. I've been married my entire life. I barely remember not being married. And I'm very happy. But trust me, as a pastor, I've sat and held the hands of and cried with many people who are in disastrous relationships. So, as we say, marriage can be the best thing you do or it can be one of the most painful decisions you make. So, marry well. Secondly, verse 28, it's obviously not wrong to marry, if you're jotting down notes. How could it be? God's the one who ordained marriage as the primary and most foundational of all human relationships. For the sake, A, of companionship, didn't he? He's the one who said in Genesis 2.18, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And B, uh, it's a foundational relationship for the sake of propagating the human race. Did he also not say in Genesis chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now just wedge this little by the way in there. You know these people that say the world is overpopulated? They're out of their minds. It's not true. The world has far more empty space than it has crowded space. We people don't manage our resources wisely, and we all want to run to the cities. I say we. I'm the last guy that wants to run to a city. The city I grew up in, uh, Simi Valley, don't hold that against me. Uh, the city I grew up in, to me, that's a big city. I mean, I, I don't like big cities. But the fact is, the world is not overpopulated, and the idea that we should stop having children is saying, we misuse the resources, we all want to crowd ourselves together, therefore what God said in the Bible isn't true. You tell me if that's wise. At any rate, young people, have kids, lots of them. That's a command, not from me, but from, from God's Word. Thirdly, verse 29 30 and 31, he says, marriage is good, but do not live for marriage, whether you're married or single. It's not the only thing in your life. Paul's words may seem complex in these verses, but what he's saying, I believe, is really quite simple. No matter what your station in life, whether you're married or whether you're single, whether you're weeping, whether you're rejoicing, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, these are not to be the church chief pursuits of life for citizens of the kingdom of God. By saying in verse 29, if you're married, live as though you're not. He's not saying live like married singles, you know, have your lives separate, your money separate, your vacation separate. You could be like ships passing in the night every now and then. He's not saying that, not saying that. He's not speaking against marriage, and he's not speaking against being faithful in marriage. Oh, live as though I'm not. I can go and run around. Well, if you're single, you're not supposed to be running around either. He's simply saying, live primarily for Christ and not for other things. You know, you want to love, you want your spouse to love you the best way possible. They need to love Jesus more than they love you. He has to be the center of our affections. The, the man or woman who loves Christ ahead of all things will be the best uh, husband or the best wife. Martin Luther said, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom 
is forever. So we do invest ourselves in our marriages. We do, most of us, I hope, love being married, and we love our spouses. But we must put Christ and the kingdom of God ahead of that. Seek first, not first get it over with and then go on with the rest of things, but first in in all-consuming priority. Number four, verses 32 through 35, both single and married people have cares. That's the word he uses, cares, concerns, we might say, or priorities. Both singles and married people have cares. And my question is, are you caring for yours? Are you caring for what you are supposed to be caring for as a married person and or as a single person? Paul begins this section in verse 32 saying he doesn't want anybody to be anxious. When he says, I want you to be without care, he's not saying be apathetic about everything. We see this same phrase in Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing. The old King James says, be careful for nothing. It doesn't mean be a thrill seeker and try to get on a TV show where people fall a lot. It's not, it's not saying that. It's saying don't be consumed, don't be overly anxious about things. He's not advocating irresponsibility. Paul correctly points out that married people have responsibilities that single people do not have. Nobody says amen to that. Um, Married people have responsibilities that single people simply do not have. Married people are responsible to live not merely for themselves, but for their mates, husband or wife, and for their children. The calling of marriage is a calling to self-sacrifice. That sacrifice for married people demands our time, think about it, our energy, our affections, and even our money. I frequently tell young men, wives aren't cheap. If you can't afford one, don't seek one. (laughs) If you can afford one, let's get this going and get married. But single people, on the other hand, because they do not have these demands of marriage, are free to invest their time, their energy, their affections, and even their money. Now, how do you finish that sentence? Most people say, on themselves, on having a good time. But that's not what God's Word says. God's Word says single people are free to invest their time, their energy, their affections, and even their money in the things of the kingdom of God in the things of the kingdom of God, in the church, in ministry, and other people. Having said that, let me challenge both married people and single people. First, the married people. Are you giving yourself up for your mate? Are you giving yourself up for your mate? If not, you are not caring as you should. I think that this may be a little bit simplistic, but I think there's a, a, a modicum of truth to this. Something I think the happiest marriage is when both husband and wife are trying to outgive each other. Trying always to say, I want to put you ahead of me. Oh, now, by the way, just a little footnote here. If you say, well, I am doing that, but she's not. I am doing that, but he's not. Well, then you're not either because you're still thinking about you. I'm not getting back as much as I'm giving. If you're a servant, that shouldn't matter. You want to know how you, whether or not you have a servant's heart? How do you react when people treat you like one? That's a pretty, pretty tough call. 
How do you act when people treat you like a servant? I want, I'm a servant. I'm a servant. I don't want to be treated like one. Well, then you aren't one. So married people, are you giving yourself up for your mates? Single people, are you giving yourselves up for the kingdom of God, for the body of Christ, and for ministry? If not, I would just simply ask, why not? I believe this is one of the more commonly disobeyed passages of Scripture. Generally speaking, and thank God there are exceptions, but they are exceptions, not the rule. Generally speaking, the major load of ministry in most churches, in most ministries, rides on the shoulders and on the backs of guess who? Married people, who also have the responsibilities for spouse and for children. So my question is, where are the singles? Generally speaking, caring for themselves. Now, I know this may seem a little bit rough, and if you're one of the exceptions, praise God. But you know what? You are an exception if it's true, because most singles are busy caring for themselves, not for ministry, when the Word of God says that should be the priority. If you're not married, you're free to serve Christ even more. That's his whole argument throughout this passage. The reason to stay unmarried is for the kingdom of God, not so that you can be selfish and be served by others. And I would just say, are you too busy to serve? Too busy with what? People with kids and marriages, and they're more busy than you are. You know, when the tough get going, so often the single go for coffee. And that's about it. Oh, and video games, but that's another story. Single people, I charge you, with, with all due love and respect, I charge you to meditate on this passage of Scripture and ask yourself, how am I measuring up to what God's Word says about single people and what singleness is freeing you for in the kingdom of God? This is a very serious thing to think about. If you're investing yourself in the ministry, great. If you are free from the demands of marriage, and if you are not investing yourself in the Lord and in the ministry, what are you investing yourself in? What are you investing yourself in? Now, before getting into the next section, uh, I want to make an important comment uh, on verses 36 through 38. I believe that virtually all translations and virtually every commentator, not every, but many commentator uh, up, up until recent years. In other words, everything that is old. And you know what? Some people think, well, if it's from the 90s, my goodness, why would we care? That, you know, I mean, the music and the fashions were ridiculous. Therefore, there couldn't have been. Any. No, I'm talking about church history for 2,000 years. Church history for 2,000 years has interpreted and understood this section to be about the role of parents, fathers in particular, with their unmarried daughters, with giving their daughters in marriage. Now, in our modern age, and reinforced by, God bless them, but I think they drank the Kool-Aid and translated the Bible wrong, the NIV Bible specifically interprets in its translation. By the way, I know I'm spiderwebbing here, but that's the problem with 
many modern translations, they're not giving you a translation of the words. They're giving you this is what we think they mean. They're adding too much interpretation. Kind of like the news today. When's the last time anybody heard actual news? There's no news. It's been completely replaced by commentary. So you get whatever news is just what that, that person or that network thinks. Well, this is what's happening with this text of Scripture. For Almost, almost a couple thousand years, this has been about fathers, parents, but fathers in particular, and the relationship of their daughters getting married. But more modern, that's fallen by the wayside, and we say these are decisions that the sweethearts need to be making. Now, what have we said before, even in this chapter? Fall in love, lose your mind. People make the, the dumbest things when they're in love. I mean, I was... I mean, I can't believe it. I look back and I think, if I was young and dumb, once I fell in love, I was completely insane. And maybe I'm the only one. But young people, you do, you do well to seek advice from your parents regarding marriage. I'll tell you two reasons why. Number one, they know you better than anybody. You know, I've known this guy for months and our hearts just can't beat unless they're beating together. Your parents have known you since you, before you were born. They have an investment in you. They know you. And guess what? They love you. So excluding your parents or, or dismissing your parents and their input into decisions about marriage is, is foolish. So as I say, this is a very important issue. It makes a difference in how you read this how you read this passage. Don't read it in the NIV. They got it wrong. Um, now, God's word, and as I say, thousands of generations, hundreds of generations at least, have understood the significance of parents, fathers in particular, giving their daughters in marriage. In fact, you know, we say, who gives this woman to be married to this man? Most people have no idea why that's in a traditional marriage ceremony because it makes sense and it's supposed to be real. But for many, it's just, uh, it's just uh, a tradition. In our modern day, parents have been removed from the loop, and marriage is a decision made strictly by the sweethearts. This is why you have movies where the girl surprises her parents by introducing them to her fiancé. Sounds to me like they weren't a part of that decision. The people who know you, who love you, and who have invested the most in you are not included in the decision. This is foolishness. Now, let me ask you this. What has been the result of this paradigm shift? What has been the result uh, of Romeo and Juliet not listening to their parents? Well, in their case, they're dead. I know it's only a story, but there you have it. Um, what's, what's been the results of this? Is marriage more highly esteemed in our culture than it used to be? Not at all. Not at all. Uh, have divorce rates plummeted? Not at all. Not at all. As a matter of fact, one of the things that's interesting about divorce rates, some people get all excited because they say divorce rates have, have actually lowered. You want to know why? Because people don't get married. They just move in together, and then they have serial relationships, and every time the wind shifts, they just move on to the next person. This is because marriage is held in very low esteem in our day today. But has has the advice of romance, the device of uh, the advice of being Twitter pated, has that helped marriage? I don't think so. And if you think about it, you'd have to agree. 
The sad fact is marriage has fallen into low estate, into a low estate, and divorce is rampant, uh, and even more so if you count all the people who get in and out of relationships without being married. How important is the role of parents in giving their daughters in marriage? That's the question. Having said that, what are these verses saying? Now we get to number five. Verses 36 through 38. I've tried to summarize these verses in a statement, and here it is. While parents are ideally involved in their children's plans to marry, parents should not unnecessarily keep their daughters from marriage. Now here's the deal. In a culture where parents had maybe iron fist rule over who their daughters would marry. Some parents, I'm a dad of daughters only, affectionately referred to as a dodo. Uh, I'm a dad of daughters only, and nobody was good enough for my daughters, trust me. But um, I know that was just a dad thinking, and so I had to think more and and be ready to to make concessions and and to recognize these things. But in a that kind of culture in which the Bible is written and which most of Western civilization, well, most of the world has been in until the 20th century, he's telling parents, don't be overly strict in keeping your daughters from marriage because nobody's good enough. Of course nobody's good enough. I say that somewhat facetiously. I see no one even curled a small smile when I said that. But... Um, so this is counsel. When, when parents are more involved, some, maybe many, I don't know, were too strict. And he's saying, don't keep them from getting married unless uh, unnecessarily keeping your daughters from marriage is not a good thing. Paul warns parents against this. Now, the point of this is of little relevance today. You know, if, if something that is a scriptural mandate is of little relevance today because culture has reinvented marriage, then I got news for you. Culture has invented or reinvented marriage incorrectly. God's word, you know, this, this is part of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. If we, so if we say, well, here's a passage of scripture that has no bearing on us today, then guess what? What you're doing is very likely, very likely, already out of step with what God's word expects as being the norm. It is because we have drifted so far from what God's word says about parental involvement in the marriage of their children, and particularly the role of fathers in the marriage of their daughters, this passage would be more relevant if we weren't so culturally off base on the whole subject to begin with. I hope that makes all sense, but it's something to think about. If you are interested in more on this, and if you haven't already, uh, there's three booklets. Uh, I think a couple of them are in the lobby, and all three are on the webpage, of, uh, our church webpage, about who to marry and why, how to marry and why, and shepherding daughters' marriage uh, um, in, in marriage. And these are on the church website. You can find them. Now, the last section, verse 39 through 40, speaks directly to the permanency, to permanency in marriage and to remarriage of widows, remarriage of widows. So the sixth point, verse 39 to 40, marriage, two points, marriage is for life. That's the permanency of marriage. And remarriage is endorsed within the biblical boundaries. 
Now, as far as God is concerned, marriage is for life. Now, let's make sure we understand the definition of marriage. One man, one woman for life. Any other so-called marriage is not a marriage in God's eyes. It doesn't matter what country, what culture, what judge, what politician, what community activist might say about these things. Please, people, do not be swayed. Well, I know a friend. I have a friend. That's, if I have a friend who's a bank robber, they're bank robbers. doesn't matter what my friends are doing. It doesn't matter what my kids are. I see how many parents as well. You know, if you're a child, so your child's experience overrules the word of God. Let me see if I got that right. Is that correct? It better not. It better not. So marriage is one man, one woman for life. Any other variation on that is not what God has commanded. And by the way, it is until death do us part. Now this marriage, which can be severed by death, this marriage covenant may be broken by divorce. Now, we talked about it in the previous message, as we learned last time, but divorce... Now, tell me if this isn't true. This may seem like a very strong statement, but you've got to listen to every word that I'm going to say. Marriage is always either a sin... Excuse me, not marriage, divorce. Divorce, if marriage is always a sin, we're in trouble. I even have the word written here, divorce, and I saw that and I said marriage. Divorce is always either a sin, meaning I've done it outside of the biblical grounds, or it is the result of sin, meaning there were biblical grounds, but those biblical grounds were because of sin. Are we together on that? That makes sense? Nobody's nodding their head. Nobody's shaking their head. Nobody's going, get out of here. I'm just assuming you're just listening so intently that you're, you're so used to nobody being able to see your face that you think your involvement in this ministry has no bearing. It does. It helps to know that somebody's going, yeah, okay, I got that. Yeah. Um, but there is one exception to what I just said about divorce always being either sin or the result of sin. And that one exception, the only other way the marriage covenant is broken completely without sin is when the husband or the wife dies. That's not like a big surprise. However, there are ramifications of that that we need to talk to in just a moment. It is rather telling that people applaud when they hear of a couple being married for a long time. Uh, you know how that is. See, we've been, you know, we're just celebrating our anniversary. What is it? Well, you know, you know, somebody says anything over 40 years, and people go, wow. Oh, I tell people, you know, Francis and I have been married for 47 years, and then I quickly follow that. We were married when I was three. Uh, <laughs> maybe not four, something like that. As I said, I've been married since I was born. But um, people ooh and all over this. It, it is something to, to ooh and all over. It is something to be esteemed. It is a commendable thing to stay married for a long time. But to me, this is just an opinion, <clears throat> it's sad to me that nowadays, when someone's been married for 20 years, people act like it's an eternity. Like it's 20 years. How could you have standed it? <laughs> um, 
And why is it so common for people to ooh and ah when we hear about a long-term marriage? It's a good thing because so few are, have long-term marriages and it's something to be esteemed. It says something about the depths to which marriage has sunk in our day. Paul writes that once a husband or a wife dies, the widowed party is free not only to be unmarried, but to remarry. Now, as Christians, the boundaries for remarriage are no different from the boundaries to a first marriage. Primarily, as Christians, rule number one, marry or remarry, verse 39, only in the Lord. Which means, now this is the simplistic answer, and there's more to it. Let me turn this clock upside down. The simplistic, and it's true, but there's more to it than this is never should a Christian be involved romantically, much less marry a non-believer. Never. Never, never. That's the simplistic answer. But, well, you know, he said a prayer when he was seven at VBS once, I think. Oh, she owns a Bible. No, we're talking about, as a Christian, you don't want to marry anybody who doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let them be accursed. Why do you want to marry someone who's accursed? Missionary dating is foolish. Well, I'll marry this person and then they'll become a Christian. Listen, rule number one in marriage, and I have a lot of rule number ones for marriage. Rule number one for marriage is don't ever marry somebody for what you hope they'll become. You marry somebody who who they are now, realizing it could go south hurry, in a hurry. But you can't say, well, I'll marry them now because I I have faith that they're going to get better. It's not a wise choice. It's, it generally ends up being... Now, does God, in his kindness, save people sometimes in these things? Yes, for which we are so, so thankful. But because God is kind doesn't mean that gives us the freedom to break his laws and his will and his word. So you want to marry only in the Lord. And I would add to that theology matters. I mentioned this recently, I think on a Thursday night uh, worship service that uh, you, you don't think that theology matters? How about something as simple as whether one of you believes in believer's bath- bathroom, believer's baptism, and one of you believes in infant baptism? You think, well, we love each other. That won't matter. It will when you have kids. It will when you have kids and your house is divided. That's just an example. There are many things. So there's much more than, well, does this person profess faith in Christ? That's the first hurdle. But there's a bunch more. When it comes to marrying only in the Lord. Trust me, marrying a nominal believer is just as hazardous to your spiritual health as marrying a non-believer. Now, since we're on the subject of widows remarrying, may I offer a couple of points of counsel about marriage as a widow or a widower. Now, I don't have chapter and verse for this. So I'm telling you up front, this is based on observation, but I think that it's some wisdom. First, people often raise an eyebrow when a widowed person remarries too quickly. Here's my question. What does too quickly mean? Second of all, who made you the judge? Who made you the judge? People raise an eyebrow when widowed persons marry too quickly. I got news for you. God doesn't. There are only two categories, married and unmarried. There's not a third category that says widowed, so i got to wait 10 years. Now, 
widows are not um, widows who are obviously they're not married. They are, that's why they're not married. It's they're widows or widowers. They're free to be married, and there is no required waiting period. Having said that, statistically, happily married people, especially men, are the most likely to remarry after the death of a spouse. Why? Well, because they love and they need companionship. Men more than women, usually. A lot of women are like, you know what? I had one. <laughs> I had a husband. You know, that's the ultimate been there, done that, right? I had a husband. It was great while it lasted, but whew! <laughs> I joke about this, but I think there's a modicum of truth to it. If Francis dies before me, I will be a basket case. If, she, if I die before, she'll be fine. She'll be fine. She'll miss me each month when it's time to pay the bills and, you know, when there's household tasks that she can't do. But other than that, she already had a husband, and it's been a good run. But, well, I say all that. Frequently men who are happily married, and sometimes women who are happily married, they love and they need the companionship. They don't want to be alone. They know the joy of a good marriage, and they long for it again. And I got news for you, that's not a bad thing. The reason I point these things out is sort of um, pastoral counseling rather than expository preaching, is the word doesn't say this. I point these things out because sometimes it's hard for people to watch as one of our widowed parents remarries. Some people have a lot of trouble with that. But unless a widowed parent is not marrying in the Lord, we need to try to curb our feelings and support our widowed parents who want to remarry if it's in the Lord. They have, it's okay. Now, having said that, let me also encourage you that if you are ever widowed, on the other side of this, try to be sensitive to your children's feelings. Um, try to move cautiously. Try to move slowly. Try to move with sensitivity. Share your heart with them. Include your adult children, because generally speaking, that'll be the case. And include your adult children in your decision. Try to keep the family happy and be understanding going both ways. Paul concludes in verse 40. Paul concludes in verse 40 by again affirming those who are happy to remain single. If you're happy to remain single, fine. But never does he denigrate, much less forbid marriage. Remember, his overriding reason for say, saying remain single is that singles are more free to serve the kingdom of God. That's his overriding argument in all of this business to singles. So the question for today's passage was, should Christians, singles, remain single? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Let me conclude by saying chapter 7 is important and it is valuable instruction from God's word, even if it's not terribly exciting because you say, well, this doesn't really apply to me. You might wonder why this is in the Bible. You might wonder why we take time to go through this. Well, the reason why we take time to go through this is because we generally preach through books and this is a part of a book. But even if it's not pertinent to you right, day, right now, someday it may be. And just as it's a little late to start reading the instructions on CPR when someone's about ready to take their last non-breath, it's important to know what God's Word says about these things before you are in trouble, 
It's good to know what the Word of God says before you're in the midst of a problem and making decisions that might be contrary to what God's Word says. And again, if you say, but this doesn't really apply to me, well, I got news for you. The Christian life is not just about me and it's not just about you. It's about us. As a member of the body of Christ, as a member of the body of Christ, even if you are never in need of the details of chapter 7 personally, others around you are or others will be, and we must be ready to counsel one another, not based on our feelings, but based on God's Word. So let us know what God's Word says, so in the day of an emergency, we know what to do. Let us thank God for giving us the heavenly instruction of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and having labored through this chapter, who knows, we might take a break next week to get a breather from this and uh, talk about another of the ordinary means of grace, but uh, you know, I'm still waiting on the Lord on that. So let's stand together and let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you would give us everything we need to know, even at times when we don't think it's pertinent, we don't care if we know it. Lord, may we want to know everything your word says, not only for our good, but for the good of those around us, that we may be, may be counselors who counsel from your word. And we thank you. Lord, we ask that in all these things, our first priority would be Jesus. Our first priority would be his righteousness and his kingdom. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.